As you know, today is October 31st, a day that many celebrate Halloween. And so, somewhat appropriately, we have a, a scary passage today in God's Word. We have a passage that's a warning about the dangers of fake faith. It doesn't use those words, fake faith. It uses the words unbelief, but... Um, it's still a warning against the seriousness of making sure our faith, our relationship with God is genuine and true. Because we can go to church, we can say the right things, we can think that we're right with God and everything is good, but our hearts could be far from Him. And in the end, you may find out that what you thought was faith was actually fake faith. And it's not worth it to have a faith that's fake, that doesn't last. It's not worth it to pretend to be something that you're really not. It's not worth it to pretend to have everything together. Yeah, I know, God, everything's good. I'm a Christian. When you don't, it's not worth it. Don't be something you're not. Because there's something better out there. There's something far better than faking it, than a fake faith that looks good to others but isn't real. And that far better thing is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can actually know Jesus. You don't have to fake it. These Sunday mornings, we've been in the book of Hebrews. This is a letter in the New Testament, and it's really a sermon. It's an unknown preacher who's speaking, addressing uh, Jewish background believers, Hebrew people. They used to follow solely the Jewish religion, but now they know Jesus Christ. But there's a problem that there's some of these Hebrew believers, they want to go back to their old way of life. They're really struggling with how things are now, and they want to go back to what's familiar, what they're used to. And the author of the book of Hebrews tells them that would be fake faith. His message to them is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than that old way. And that's been our focus this series, how Jesus is better than anything else we compare him to. We've talked about how when we compare things, it adds more emotion. You can say Jesus is best, but when you say he's better than something else, better than fake faith, last week better than our heroes, there's more emotion. Like if you're comparing food or something like that. If you're going to go get me a, a cold cut kind of sandwich, you're going to ask, well, what do you want, John? Do you want ham? Do you want roast beef? I'll say, well, I think roast beef is better than ham. And maybe you disagree, but the point is we attach emotion to things we say are better. And the author's message here is that Jesus is better than any type of fake faith or fake system of belief we could come up with. Last week we saw Jesus is better than our heroes because in that verse we read we saw he's the ultimate builder. He's built everything we see around us in creation and he molds and forms God's people. We also talked about how he's better than other heroes because he is the son of God and we shouldn't follow anyone else but him. If we follow someone else, we're proving that we have fake faith. So today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 11. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so today we're going to read it as we go along instead of reading it all in the beginning. So let me pray, and then we'll look at our passage. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, God. We pray now that you would indeed change our hearts, God, that they would be ever true, that they would be more like you. God, as we look at your word, may we take this warning that the author is going to give us. May that warning lead us, Lord, to search our hearts, 
to want to encourage others and to hold firm to the end so that our life may not be defined by unbelief, but by faithfulness to you. Not because of something we do or we earn, but because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we may see him clearly this morning. I pray that in our minds he may increase and have more glory and everything else that we would compare to him would decrease because he is better. Thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in your name I pray. Amen. The first thing our passage does, this is Hebrews chapter 3. You can use the few Bibles to see back in front of you. We'll also have the words on screen. Verse 7 is we have an Old Testament warning. The author gives us a warning from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, to show us the danger of fake faith. I'm going to read that warning. That's verses 7 through 11. So Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here's the quote from the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here, the author is quoting from the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 95. And it's a passage he's going to come to again and again throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4. And look what he said at the very beginning of verse 7. It says, as the Holy Spirit says. He says it's the Holy Spirit who's really said this. It's God communicating with us. And look even at the word. He says the Holy Spirit says, not said. This is from the Old Testament. It was written hundreds of years before this. But he doesn't say the Holy Spirit said this. He says says the Holy Spirit is communicating this to us right now. In this passage, he's going back to a story that his audience would have been very familiar with. It's the story of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. This people started in their promised land, although they did not own it, they just lived there. But they ended up in Egypt, and they were in slavery for hundreds of years, serving the Egyptians. But God raised up one of their own, a man named Moses. If you were here last week, we talked about him last week. Moses went to the people. He, through God working through him, led them out of slavery. They were free. They were on their way home to a promised land. But then things started to go wrong. While Moses was faithful, we talked about that last week, his people weren't. They failed. They constantly doubted. They grumbled. They murmured against God, especially when their food or water seemed to be running out. And when the time came, they were right at the promised land, on the very doorstep of it. They refused to go in. They were scared of the people in there. They said, no, we want no part of that. This is God's response that we're reading in this passage. God's patience was tried. They put him to the test because they doubted his goodness. He brought them there. He was going to take care of them when they got there. They said, no, we don't want to do that. They refused to trust God. Their hearts completely turned away from him. Later in the New Testament, a man named Stephen is speaking to the Hebrew people about this. And he talks about Moses. And he says, this man led them out, led them out of Egypt. He performed wonders and signs in Egypt. 
At the Red Sea, the Red Sea parted. And He performed wonders in the wilderness for 40 years. But our fathers refused to obey Him. They thrust Him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They said, we'd rather have slavery than the good that God wants to do for us. And so God was understandably angry about this. He had done all this work to bring them out. He had taken care of them. He gave them food from heaven. He provided water even in a desert. But still they didn't want anything to do with him. We can understand God's frustration at this. If there's someone you're trying to help, maybe like a a, a child or a loved one, and you know what's best for them, and you're trying really hard, this is what you need to do. If you do this, then everything will be okay. But they just refuse to take that help. And God was frustrated with that as well. But his response is not really emotion, but it's the fact that they're rejecting him, someone who's perfect and good. And so when it says in verse 11, he swore something in his wrath, it's he's seeing they are sinning, they are rejecting me, even though I'm showing them love. They presumed that God would not send them any consequences, that they could get away with sin and rejecting God. But there is a consequence for them. Because they repeatedly reject him again and again and again, He says, they shall not enter my rest. A whole generation of people were unable to go into the promised land. The author of Hebrews, he quotes this because he wants his audience to heed that warning as well. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He's setting up a conversation about this kind of fake faith. And he's saying, if you don't have genuine trust in God, if you continually reject and turn from Him, then what you earn is God's judgment, eternal separation from Him. But He doesn't leave them there. He gives them good news. What should we do instead? What should be our response instead of this fake faith? Well, He gives us a faithful response. A faithful response. We see this in verses 12 through 14. Instead of the the wrong way of going about things. He quotes the Old Testament, and now, like a preacher, he's preaching a sermon, remember? He's going to apply the text, saying this is what you should do instead. Let's read verses 12 through 14. He says, Take care, brothers, or take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author makes a direct address to the people he's writing. He calls them his brothers and sisters. He wants them to grasp this. He's talking to these people who claim to be Christians. And he tells them what they should and shouldn't do. He uses some words of what they shouldn't be doing. He says evil, unbelieving, hardened, deceitfulness, fall away. But instead, they're to take care. They're to exhort or encourage. They're to hold firm. These three verses are kind of part of this passage. It's going to be where we spend most of our time. And there's a lesson for us in each of them. So in that first verse, verse 12, we see that faithful believers should search their hearts. His instruction to us is we should search our hearts. Search your heart. 
Look again at verse 12. It's on the screen. Take care, brothers, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's telling them to take care, see to, search, understand, examine your heart. Look at what is happening in it. Don't focus on critiquing others, but be aware if your heart is evil, sinful, but is opposed to God and wants to turn you away from Him. It's a challenge to any of us who claim to follow Christ that we must search and examine our hearts. We should ask ourselves regularly, is my heart set on God? Am I focused on Him? Is He the center of my life or is something else there? Now you may hear that and you may think, well, Pastor John, surely I don't have to do that. Pastor John, I've been a Christian my whole life. I'm in church every week. I've been here all all the time. Why should I take the time to search my heart? I took care of that years ago. But remember, the author of this book is talking to Christians. He thinks this is important. It's extremely important. We're talking about our eternal souls. As Pastor Charles Spurgeon said, he was talking about this. He said, if you trifle, if you mess around with anything, well, let it be with your wealth, your money, or with your health, but certainly not with your eternal interests. Our passage will tell us that this life of unbelief is falling away from God. We do not know Him, so we depart from Him. There will be those who appear to be Christians, who seem to be doing all the right things, but their life later proves that their heart was far from Him. They had an unbelieving heart. As Spurgeon says, if He, if God does not come into your daily life, but your religion, it's a dead and formal thing, you just show up at church, you just check the boxes, If he's not in your daily life, then you will soon depart. Friends, is God a part of your daily life? Is he someone you interact with and talk to every day? Or do you just check in with him once a week here at church? That is a dangerous place to be. It happens, this fake faith pops up because life is hard. We say we trust God, but things get a little rough and we we start to doubt. And if we're not careful, we may find ourselves drifting away. Now, if we know God, this, this could just be that we lose our assurance, our, our trust in our firmness of our trust, or maybe we're not as effective in serving Him. But for someone who genuinely doesn't know God, the results are even worse. They are deceived. We read in verse 13 that this sin is deceitful. It lies to us. Our own hearts will lie to us. They'll tell us we're good, we're doing what's right, even when we're not. Sin may even twist our understanding of God's Word. In the book of Romans, Paul writes that sin seized an opportunity through God's commandments, His Word. And it could even twist them, deceive me, and through it, killed me. Each of us, every person, is born with a deceived, sinful heart that's separated from God. I know it's not pleasant to think about, but it's true. We have a heart that wants what we want, not what God desires. But if we know God, if we've turned to Christ in faith, then we've been set free from sin's control. But even then, we can, we will, and we do still sin. The sin usually comes into our lives through a gradual process. There's a temptation. There's something, I'd like to do this. I know God says this isn't right, but I'd like to do this. We dwell on it. Then we may be deceived by it. We may tell ourselves, it's just a little thing. 
It's not a big deal. If I do it just this once, that's, that's not huge. We're being deceived by sin. Then we compromise with that sin. And then, if we continue in it, our heart will be hardened. One pastor I was reading about, F.B. Meyer, talking about this, he compared it to a lake during winter. And during winter at night, the lake slowly freezes over. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not snap and then the lake is solid ice. But it slowly, it gradually freezes and hardens. Just like our hearts may harden with sin. We may get away with it the first time. Maybe even the first couple times. But if we continue in it, it will eventually destroy us. Last time from Spurgeon, he said, never dispute with the devil. He can always beat you. Go straight to the cross. Don't try to reason with sin, argue way out of it, think about, is this okay? Is it not? Go to Christ. Ask God to search your heart. The song we sang, change my heart, O God. If we're wrestling with something and we think, I think this is wrong, then, then bring it to God. Talk to Him. If you have a relationship with Him, address Him directly. God, I, I'm feeling deceived by this. I, I'm pretty sure your word says this is wrong, but it's something I really want to do. Can you please work in my heart and change me, bring me back to you? That's, that's hard to do, though. I know that. And that's why we're also told to encourage and exhort one another to keep going. That's the second lesson from this passage, is to encourage others. Not just search our own heart, but then encourage others to seek God. Look again at verse 13. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, this is the good news about the Christian life. We're not on this journey alone. We're a Christian. We have brothers and sisters in faith with us. That's why I, I talk a lot about how it's important to be a part of a church family so that we have other people to encourage us as we seek God. The author of Hebrews, he'll talk about this later in the book in chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but instead we encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. A season of difficulty, of hardship, of, of struggle, that's not a reason to give up. We're challenged to encourage one another, to persevere. We exhort one another to keep sin at bay, keep it away, keep sin and Satan away, and set your thoughts on God. Cling closer to Him. Each of us needs this reminder from one another to persevere when things are hard and we are challenged. And if you're listening and you think, you know, I don't need that reminder. I don't need anybody to tell me to get closer to God. Well, then you need it more than the rest of us. We, each of us needs that. And if we're in a place of pride, we think we're good, that's, that's where we're in a place we might stumble. And we need someone to encourage and challenge us. We try that in many ways here at the church. We have small groups that meet during the Sunday school hour. We have groups that meet in people's homes where we pray for one another and encourage one another. We have a biblical counseling ministry. We offer free yes to the community, but also to our members. If we're struggling with something in life and we want to talk to another believer, that's an opportunity to be encouraged. Our goal here is that we pray for one another, encourage one another. And we're to do this. We're to warn our brothers and sisters now. Our text says today. He says it twice. <laughs> Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, before it is too late. 
as long as we have the opportunity, we're to share encouragement with one another. Here we model Christ's heart. Jesus says that he is like a shepherd who would leave 99 sheep to go rescue one that went astray. As Jesus says in Luke, he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Friends, if you see someone, a brother and sister in Christ, you know they're struggling, you know things are rough and things are hard in their life right now, don't think, well, stinks to be them. No, no. Reach out. Encourage them. Encourage one another. Because if you encourage someone, you may be the one who inspires them to hold firm to the end. To hold their faith firm to the end. As verse 14 says, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This is a call for perseverance because we share, we partake together in Christ. True Christians know that they share in Christ. They know Him and have a relationship with Him. They're able to share in His blessings and all that belongs to Him. It's an amazing privilege. This is what Jesus does for us. Remember, our hearts were deceitful and wicked and far from Him, but He invites these rebels, these people who are opposed to God. He says, come into my house and share in my blessings and joy. That's what we have as Christians. We have an eternal victory and joy in the future. Yes, things may be incredibly difficult now. I don't know every trial or struggle that each person here is going through. I don't. But I do know that for those who have a relationship with Jesus, there is a future of victory and joy ahead. Here, our author is repeating something that he talked about last week. We saw it in verse 6. He says, and we are his house. We are a part of God's family. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. We're a part of God's family if we hold fast. We hold firm to our confidence and our relationship in him. We must hold this conviction, this commitment, this confidence firm to the very end of our lives. We must continue to trust him. We need to finish well. The author will pick this discussion up again in chapter 10. Chapter 10, he says something very similar. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The evidence that we know God, that we have salvation, that we have a relationship with Him is endurance to the end. A lifetime defined by faithfulness. As one scholar, D.A. Carson, or actually said, I heard him at a conference, he said, true Christians stick. Real faith sticks. Now when we read this though, some of us who maybe have been in church for a while, we see these phrases like if, this word if, if I do something then, I I'm, have a right relationship with God? And so the question becomes, if I know God, then is it possible to lose that salvation, that I could know God but then be separated from Him? Is it possible to lose that salvation? Well, I think from God's Word and here in Hebrews, the answer to that is no but. No but. No, it's not possible to lose that salvation. But we should take these warnings very seriously. They're there to challenge our hearts, to ask ourselves, do we truly know 
God? Or am I really a believer in him? We can't lose our salvation. Jesus talks about this in the book of John. He says, my sheep, my people hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We're secure in Him. But Hebrews 3 and passages like it give us a warning against being hardened by sin. Remember, sin can deceive us. Sin can deceive us into believing, thinking, I'm a believer, I know God, when we really don't. And if we then say we do, but we get hardened and captivated by sin, well, then we give evidence that we were not a believer in the first place. I talked about Carson earlier, who D.A. Carson, he said, real Christians stick, real faith sticks. Well, he also said, you can be touched by enough grace that you turn over a new leaf, but you don't stick. You can make some wonderful changes in your life on your own effort. There's plenty of self-help books out there that can tell you how you can turn your life around. But if we have a relationship with God, that's something that will last and endure. And if there's no evidence of that perseverance, if we say we're a Christian, we maybe make some changes, but then our life goes back the way it was, there's no evidence of it then there's no reason to believe that we're saved, that we know God. If Jesus has not changed us, then we have no reason to believe, yes, I know him and have a relationship with him. That's why Scripture uses these words about if here, about if you have this faith that sticks, that endures. This isn't just a Hebrews thing. Paul does it too. This is a well-known passage, at least the first part in 1 Corinthians. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, this good news by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, hold firm to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Genuine believers in Jesus persevere. They continue in the faith. That's what perseverance is. It just means continuing in faith in Christ. A lifetime of faithfulness, of obeying him. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we do everything right all the time. It means that we look at our life, we see it's defined by faithfulness to God and not chasing after the things I want. Continuing in faith like that gives us the confidence that we know the Lord. It gives us assurance, yes, I know God. I can rest and trust in Him. This is a book I've referenced before. It's one I really enjoy. Pastor J.D. Greer, he was just the previous president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's a pastor in North Carolina. And one of my favorite books he wrote is called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And the reason he calls it that, he's saying you don't have to keep praying, God save me, God save me. You don't have to keep praying a prayer of salvation. There's a way that you can know that you have a relationship with him. And that way, he says, is at the end of the day, knowing the moment of your conversion, when you're saved, that's not essential. But what is essential is to know that you are currently, right now, in a posture of repentance, rejecting sin, and faith, trust in God. Regardless of when you first assumed the posture, the fact that you are in it now assures you of your salvation. Knowing when it first happened, well, that may be helpful, but knowing that you are trusting him now is essential. You can tell yourself all day, I prayed a prayer back when I was a kid, but if Jesus is not making a difference in your life right now, you have no reason to believe that you are saved. 
That is where our assurance is in that I can see the difference he's making in my life. Yes, it's important to turn from sin. That's essential. If you haven't done that, that's what we need to do. But the way we know him is by seeing what he's doing now. Now, from our human perspective, we can't look at somebody else and know, yes, I know they have a relationship with God or or they don't. We don't know someone's eternal destiny. We can believe and hope, but only God knows. So I'm talking about looking at ourselves, but what if you see somebody else who maybe claimed to know Christ, but now seems far from him? What should we do? Well, first, we should pray for those who go astray. We should pray for them. In the book of James, the author says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, cover a multitude of sins. We pray for those who go astray. If they're genuine believers, they will come back. And then we also remember who's really in charge. We remember that God is the one who really keeps us at the end of the day. He says, and I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so our passage today ends with a final warning. Beware of unbelief. Beware of unbelief. He quotes again from Psalm 95. Let me read the passage 15 through 18. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he, was God provoked and angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief passage has some rhetorical questions and answers he's remembering recalling you remember israel's story they were in the wilderness but they rejected god they knew he was real but they did not believe and trust in him they did not believe that he was good they didn't have a relationship with him and god responded to that you can see it in numbers up on the screen none of those who have seen my glory and the signs i've did in egypt none of those who put me to the test shall see the land i swore to give to their fathers. There's a cost to disobeying God. There's a consequence for not trusting Him. Many of those who followed Moses out of Egypt did not enter the promised land. A little bit later in chapter 14 and verse 28, God says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. All of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, I'm not diving fully into that, but something struck me as I was thinking about that, that passage. These are the people God brought out of slavery. If we read in the book of Numbers, we find out there's over around 600,000 men who are part of this group. They, they counted the heads of families, the men. Of those 600,000 men, two made it to the promised land. Two out of 600,000. I tried to do the math. That's uh, three ten-thousandths of a percent of people. That's not a great 
percentage there. I'm not saying doubt your, your salvation. I'm not saying that, that's, that percentage will be reflected in our church. I'm not saying that, but I am saying it should humble us. Because who are we to presume, oh, I'm good with God. I don't need to think about my relationship with Him. Two out of 600,000. Verse 18 brings out for us now how clearly this disobedience led to unbelief. Their unbelief, their lack of trust of God led them to disobey Him. They despised the land He wanted to give to Him. They had no faith in His promise. They murmured in His tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's Psalm 106. Next week we'll read that the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They would have assumed they were safe and they were good with God, but their heart did not belong to him. Those who died in the wilderness were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. Now, you may say, but I, I believe there's a God. Well, this unbelief, as F.B. Meyer says, is the child not of our head, but of our heart. These were people who saw the plagues. If you remember the story of Exodus, if you ever watch something like the Ten Commandments, all those great miracles and plagues, they saw that. They went with Moses. They saw the Red Sea split. They believed that God was real. Their unbelief wasn't that they thought, oh, God doesn't exist. No, they knew that. Their unbelief was they didn't trust God. They didn't believe God was good. They thought he didn't have their best interest at heart. They said, yeah, there's this God, but he doesn't really care about me. He's not looking out for what I want. They doubted him. They did not believe he had the power to save them and take care of them. As Psalm 78, when the Lord heard this, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled. His anger rose because they did not believe in God. They did not trust in his saving power. Our author is making it very clear. We should not repeat their mistakes. Instead, we should search our hearts, encourage others. We should hold firm, persevere to the end so that we make it to God's eternal rest. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for today, let's, let's search our hearts for a moment. And let's ask ourselves, do I live in unbelief? Do I think God isn't good and he doesn't care about me? Or do I live trusting God in faithful obedience to him? Do I share in Christ? Do I have a relationship with him? And I encourage you to think about that and come to an answer about it today. Look again at verse 7 we've looked at. As he quotes that passage, and he quotes in verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today is the day to know. Protestant reformer John Calvin said, We know not whether God will extend his calling to tomorrow, so let us not delay. Today he calls us. Let us immediately respond to him. There is no faith except where there is such a readiness to obey. Today is the day to figure it out. Do you know God? Not just that you said this, not just I've been a part of church or things like that. Do you know him? Is he making a difference in your life? Ask yourself that today. And if you don't know him and you want to know more, then talk to someone about that today. Talk to someone about how you can turn away from sin. Place your faith and trust in him. Today is the day to have a conversation about it. because We don't know if we have tomorrow. If we do know Christ, then today is the day to, for us as well. We have a decision every day. Am I going to follow God? 
or am I going to not? A way we follow Him, a way we honor Him, is by worshiping and praising Him, is by remembering what He has done for us through things like the Lord's Supper. So let's do that now. Let's worship and praise Him who has acted to save us and then remember what He has done.